Hey, thanks, Maro, uh, for bringing us our reading today. Last minute, little request from you. Great work, mate, or from me, actually, to you. So great work, and thanks for, for bringing that reading to us this morning. Hey, let's pray again, and we're just going to get straight into uh, this passage from Luke this morning and, and just dive in and see what it's got for us. A loving Father, we just want to... Uh, bring this moment, uh, our church, our time in your word up before you as we pick up again uh, this morning our study in Luke's gospel and Luke's account of all that Jesus has accomplished for us and what he's done that we might through faith in Jesus have our hearts warmed uh, with affection for you, have our lives transformed in a, in a, in a passionate obedience to you. Uh, would your spirit uh, take the words that, that your spirit has inspired and make them real to us. Uh, let them come to life in our hearts and, and would they shape the way we understand you and would they shape the way we live and we pray these things uh, in Jesus' name. Well, um, the phrase, I've finally found my calling in life uh, is a sentence that we often hear from people who've come to a place uh, where what they do in life uh, gives them a deep sense of satisfaction uh, a deep sense of purpose, and even on top of all that, a deep sense of peace, uh, of finding their place, if you like, in, in the universe. It's not, a, it's not a begrudging labor anymore, but rather it's the kind of thing that just makes them excited about going to bed and, and just want to get into bed early and set their alarm clock so they can wake up early and just attack the day. The calling, whatever it might be, uh, is just this endless river of passion in their lives, this ongoing adventure that even when it gets daunting, that even when it gets hard and even when it's costly to them, they're willing to sacrifice. They're willing to go through the hardship for it because this is their calling, this vocation, this expression of life. Uh, there's a hope that in now that they've found it, that it will keep uh, continuing to provide uh, this experience of meaning, this deep satisfaction and purpose that they haven't been able to find in life so far, but now they've stumbled upon. You know, this is what you, you often say, oh, this is what I've been born for. This, this is what I'm called into. And how lucky are we, are we when we navigate our way to it, when we find it? And I think all of us uh, would love to live that life where we, where we find our calling. And the reason for that is it's a design script. We're actually designed to live exactly like this, to experience the way John, the way uh, Jesus describes it in John's gospel is, is to have life in the full. And Jesus says, well, well, that's found in me. Where it's not just a chore to wake up uh, each morning and go into our day, but we live rather uh, captured by a greater sense of purpose, a greater sense of mission, that live constantly consumed uh, by deeply satisfying passion, um, to be overmastered by something greater than what we've had before, something greater than all of our dysfunctional scripts, all of our limited small personal ambitions, and to have a, a kind of a certainty and a security and a safety to know way beyond a shadow of a doubt that what we have given our lives to was worthy of the life that it took, that we would not be left disappointed in any way or, or in any way underwhelmed by the calling that, that had been placed uh, on our lives. Well, it's this kind of calling 
the kind of consuming passion over our lives that Luke is actually uh, writing and inviting us into. He's, he's written his gospel, you know, led to lead us to this place of an un- unshakable certainty, uh, of undeniable faith. Uh, that a life-transforming encounter with Jesus is more than something that we would say is worth dying for, but it is something that is worth living for. Jesus is someone to leave all other ambitions for, all other passions for, and never ever live a single moment of our lives ever again in regret or boredom or uncertainty. And I guess the question that Luke wants to us to answer, the question that Luke wants us to face is, have you encountered that kind of calling at that level in Jesus? Not merely encountered Jesus as some kind of moralistic teacher, uh, some inspirational sort of model for life, not merely someone to give us something to do on Sunday, just a little hobby, little routine, but as, but as Lord and indeed Saviour who masters the universe of our hearts, secures and sustains the peace of our souls. Have you had your kingdom of your ambitions and your ideas tipped upside down by Jesus yet? That's the question that Luke's pushing us into. And Luke has given us enough facts so far about Jesus, even at this early stage of his gospel, to have that kind of calling take place in our hearts. Luke has presented us with with, with Uh, with compelling historicity, the supernatural and divine events and nature of Jesus' birth, along with with the very ordinary humanity of Jesus' birth. Jesus is presented as the Son of God and, and the Son of the Virgin Mary. He's a descendant of David, but not just as another descendant of Adam, but as the Son of God come into the world to declare and make real in people's hearts the gospel of the kingdom of God, a supernatural reality through which both the physical and the spiritual disorder and destruction of sin are reversed, are cured, are healed, are replaced with, with this expression that Jesus used, the, the year of the Lord's favor, which, you know, J- Josh tapped on last week and said it's a peace, it's a rest in God that leave, leads to a life for God. A reality that Jesus said back in Luke 4.21 has come true in their hearing as they heard Jesus speak about it in their hearing today. And all that follows in Luke's gospel are accounts of how that claim of Jesus continues to be fulfilled. It's, it's a today that's going to have a lot more todays. Indeed, Jesus spends a Sabbath day in the rest of chapter 4 demonstrating his authority to do just that. His authority to redeem and restore the physical world and the spiritual world, even going as far as to, as to heal Peter's mother-in-law uh, from, a, from a fatal fever. Like who heals someone's mother-in-law? Does this kingdom of Jesus, this year of the Lord God's favor, have no boundaries, no limits? Now here in chapter 5, what Luke does is he gives us a test case, a record of what it looks like to join Jesus, uh, to find our calling in life, following Jesus in this kingdom, and not merely just living our lives in our own little kingdoms. Luke says, 
on one occasion or one day. It's another one of those many todays that Jesus is, is going to be involved in, where he's preaching the good news, proclaiming the favor of God, uh, you know, teaching uh, the word of God into the lives of people. It's a, pretty, it's a bit of a strange setting, really, not what you'd expect to read if, if someone was creating a story uh, about Jesus, the divine Son of God, uh, and how he called his first disciples, how he called his first followers. It's, it's painfully ordinary and uninspiring at first. Just another ordinary day, just what you'd expect if someone was actually writing up a true and accurate historic account. Jesus now finds himself hemmed in on the shoreline of, of the lake of Gennesaret, or as it's written up in the other Gospels, the Sea of Galilee. There's a crowd and it's, it's pressing in to hear the word of God, which is a phrase that attributes the words that Jesus speaks as having their source and, their, and the authority of God. Jesus' gospel is not merely his own. Jesus' teaching is not merely his own. It is God's message, the very word of God spoken through Jesus. So we don't get to make up what we think God is like or how we think God would have us live. God has delivered that message, made it known to us through Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, what he wants for your life, you need to look at and listen to what Jesus has said about all of that, which is why the Holy Spirit had Luke write it down so that we could have it, so we could read his words and, and have his message. You know, we, we get the Gospels as of the recorded events. But on this day, these people got Jesus speaking. And he has come to preach, uh, as he does, about how all that God has said and all that God has done and promised find its completion and its ongoing reality, its greater fulfillment in him. Well, at least that's what we assume because we're not actually told what he says here, but that's the consistent message. But it's a chaotic crowd that we find here. There's no control and, and, and Jesus wants to be heard and he can't be heard. and He's getting pushed back into the water. Jesus, the son of God, needs a little help. Like I said, it's, it's, it's not writing uh, that we'd, we'd expect to find if somebody was trying to invent an awe-inspiring way to start a religious movement. But just down the shoreline are Jesus' boys, Peter and Andrew, uh, with their mates, the brothers James and John. This crew are fans of Jesus, if you like. They come to hear his preaching at the synagogue. They've, they've had him back at home for meals. They help him out with the odd ministry job around the place. It's kind of cool to, to have Jesus as an acquaintance. But right now, they're trying to keep a low profile just, just down the beach. The last thing that these professional fishermen wanted this morning, uh, after having spent the whole night fishing and, and catching nothing, coming home uh, with empty nets and empty boats, is a large crowd of people to see that there. And you can imagine people just calling, hey, hey, Peter, you caught any fish, brother? No? No fish? You ever thought of maybe being a dentist or something like that? Just, you know, piling in. No one's giving uh, James and John any beef, but like you, you want to pile into them, just kind of roll up on you, those two boys, drown you in the lake. But anyway, that, that's when Jesus asks Peter if he can use his boat as a pulpit to preach. And Peter's happy to help Jesus out. It's always cool when we get to help uh, Jesus out of a jam, isn't it? 
here you go, Jesus, not kind of sure how you would have got by, uh, you know, preaching that gospel without my boat uh, out there, or, or I'm not sure how, you know, your church would have got by without me donating my secondhand couch to it, or, or without my tithe, or without my expertise as an accountant, or whatever it is. Uh, we like to help Jesus out with little things that we have lying around, but they're the things at the edges, they're the things that we can control, that we like to hand over. Well, what Jesus preaches from Simon's boat, or Peter's boat, I know I'm going to switch between those two names. In this account, he's Simon at the moment. We're not told. We're just told that when he finishes teaching, he's got another request for Simon. Put out into deep water, let down the nets for a catch. This time, this request from Jesus kind of crosses a bit of a line, if you like. It's one thing to ask Jesus, uh, one thing for Jesus to ask Simon, sorry, for the use of his boat to preach from. It's another thing to tell Simon how he should use his boat in his uh, chosen field of expertise, in his profession. Simon and the lads had fished all night in, in, in the best time for fishing, under the best conditions for fishing. And now this dry lander, this carpenter, is telling them to go and grab all the nets that they've just finished cleaning, just finished fixing, just fish, finished you know, sorting out, and then to row out into the worst possible spot to fish at the worst possible time to fish. It's costly, it's inconvenient, and it makes no sense at all. No wonder there's a bit of annoyance in Simon's reply. Master, we, the professional fishermen, have toiled all night, you know, during the best time to fish in the best spot. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Michael Wilcock observes in this in his commentary. He says, you know, if Jesus wanted to teach the Bible, that was one thing. He could even borrow Peter's boat to do it if he needed to. But when he started telling Simon Peter how to fish, that's another matter entirely. You know, back in the day, I was a pretty good bricklayer. At least I think I was. I had a great team anyway. The job site was my kingdom. It was where I was good at what I, what I did. It was the one place where I had very few, very few peers. Well, at least people ones anyway. I had plenty of brick ones. Uh, very few peers and, and people that were better uh, at what I did. I remember bricking up a house in the suburb of Myrtleford and having the owner come to me and start to give me advice about how to brick up his house. I kind of just smiled at first. Yeah, mate, no worries at all. Uh, but when he started insisting that I do it his way, that's kind of when I pushed back a little harder. That's when I politely told him to stay in his lane. Hey, you farm tobacco. Why don't you go down and farm tobacco and you leave the brick lane to me and get off my job site? We tend to push back when we feel that... Uh, unqualified people tell us how to run our lives particularly when it's in an area of life that we've made a name for ourselves in that, that we feel that, that we're quite significant in that, that we understand we feel it's ours to define and, and we rule it and we'll have no one else telling us how to function in it well this is a bit of a mutiny really on simon's boat Jesus is invading simon peter's universe he's, he's challenging the the rule to the kingdom of self where Simon calls a shot. Simon's happy to hear Jesus teach the Bible. He's happy to watch him heal. He's happy to marvel at Jesus. He's even happy to help him out. Happy to keep Jesus in his lane, doing what Jesus does best. But Jesus wants to call Peter into another kingdom. Jesus actually wants to jump into his lane, actually, and take over his lane with a kingdom where Jesus is Lord and indeed Savior of Simon's life. 
not merely as someone that Simon helps out and admires. Jesus wants more than his Sunday attendance at church. He wants, he wants his whole world. His whole life must be captured by who Jesus is. Even this area of his life, fishing. Peter's skeptical. He has doubts. Holds on to his understanding of the world, if you like. Indeed, all of the disciples exhibited doubt in one way or another in their callings to follow Jesus, to leave behind one set of ambitions and understanding of life. They were not made out of mere sentiment or some kind of emotionally moving idea. Their call to follow Jesus was a result of an inconvenient but irresistible truth, a discovery. Well, this miracle lays the basis for that realization in Simon of who Jesus is in comparison to other people. Simon's heard him preach. He, he, he's had his heart stirred, even inspired. Simon has watched as Jesus healed the sick and the demon oppressed. He even saw his mother-in-law restored back. But Simon is yet to be captured by Jesus. Against every fiber of how Jesus, of how Peter understands the world, in particular fishing, he responds. There's no, there's no way Simon could have envisaged what would happen next. But what he's seen and heard from Jesus, what he's come to know about Jesus, has him in a place where not doing what Jesus asks, not following Jesus, would seem more undesirable than trusting, than obeying, than following. It's counterintuitive, but at this point in time, nothing else makes more sense. This is the beginning of Christian faith, of discipleship, if you like, of following Jesus. And the question is, have you found yourself in that space where to trust Jesus is more compelling, makes more sense than your doubt around it? Well, Luke tells us it's the catch of a lifetime. It's the kind of career-defining catch that, that would literally put them in the fishing hall of fame. This is, this is the kind of story that they will be able to tell and retell every time they get together again. Every time there's a barbecue, every time there's a birthday, every time there's a bar mitzvah, you know, they're going to be able to tell this great story. Hey, Simon. Yes, Andrew. Remember that time we caught those fish? Such a large number of fish that our, that our nets were breaking. We had to call James and John in. You remember that? You remember that, James and John? Yes, Andrew nearly sunk our boats. Yeah, hey, tell that story. Everyone would just roll their eyes. Here we go again, the fishing story. I have a story like this. I tell it every time a team is down in a football match by an, it's what seems like an insurmountable amount. A story about how Yak and Dander uh, were down by, in a grand final by 48 points approaching half time and how against all the odds, our spectators leaving, no one thought we could win. We came back to win this flag by 11 points. And as I start to regale and go on about this story, everyone in my house is just like, yes, Dad. Because they've heard it a hundred times. But I love to tell that story. I've got photos of that story. I've got, I've got the newspaper article framed and hanging up on my wall. So what Peter does next is also off script, is also not really what we would come to expect, what we might expect. 
We might expect Peter to celebrate. Quick, grab a camera. Let's get a selfie with Jesus, you know. Make sure we get both the boats and all the fish, that kind of thing. Or, or hey, let's start an outreach ministry right here. People are going to come from everywhere. We'll row out each day, catch the fish again. Won't that be cool? Jesus can preach, you know, signs and wonders, that kind of business. Or let's write a book about how to trust Jesus and be prosperous. No, none of that predictable rubbish happens. Because this miracle has actually finished the job on Peter's heart in a very special, very personal manner. He's a professional fisherman. So he knows how humanly and best practice impossible this catch of fish is. He also knows that such a catch has only come about because of the divine authority and power of the person of Jesus. This is no carpenter telling an old sea dog how to fish. This is no tobacco grower telling a brickie how to lay bricks. This is the very word of God talking into the life of another person. Asking him if he really recognizes who it is he has in his boat. There is a bigger gap between Simon and Jesus than just rabbi and student, than preacher and fisherman, than, than master and assistant. The gap is ontological. The gap is about nature, about who they are. The gap is about divine and human. The gap is holiness and sinfulness, worthy and unworthy. And Simon feels the full weight of that gap. That difference. He is aware all of a sudden he is struck by the holiness of who Jesus is and the sinfulness of who he is. They are not the same. And it's terrifying and it's compelling all at once. This is how you know if you've really met Jesus for who he really is. You are terrified by it. By, by who, how you've come to understand who he is for the first time. And you realize that, as we often say, Randy, you realize that you are far more sinful than you ever dare admit. But at the same time, what Peter will come to find and what, and what you will find is that we are far more loved than we ever dare dream. And Peter knows in this moment he's been seen, Jesus has seen him to the very bottom of his soul. And so he takes what we would call the second step, if you like, in discipleship, the next step of following Jesus, acknowledges the gap. Jesus' holiness causes, if you like, a moral agony in this sinner. And Simon has nowhere to go but to confess that he is a sinner. This is not uh, Simon Peter rattling through a list of sins like a confessional, you know, just, just ticking them off as he goes. This is, this is Peter realizing that he is Sinful, not merely in act, but in nature. That's his confession. It's not, oh, Jesus, I must tell you about the time that I, that I spoke cruelly to my wife. Oh, and then there was the time that I got my neighbor's cat and I used it for fish and bait. None of that. Peter is undone by his sinfulness in the presence of Jesus' holiness. And Peter does what we all feel we need to do when we become aware of our sin. And that is to make the gap bigger. Make the gap bigger between, between us and Jesus. 
Tell Jesus to get away from us. That's what happens when we come into contact with God. If we really perceive uh, the gap between us and Jesus, between sinners and God, we are struck with a reality that there is no safe way for us to have a relationship. And we can feel like that. We can feel like we don't deserve to come into God's presence. We, we, we can feel far too guilty, too sinful. And, and while this may be true, it is also the wrong conclusion to jump to. It's the conclusion that Peter jumps to. But Jesus does not bring us to a place where we see our sinfulness to drown us in that deep water of our sin. And this is where the story about the miraculous catch of fish fades into the background And the story of miraculous grace is what ultimately sinks Peter's boat. Is what puts a calling into the heart of Simon Peter that floods his soul with a greater story. And the question is, has your soul been flooded with a greater story? Greater than a career-defining catch of fish? Greater than some, you know story of a football comeback greater than any of the worldly ambitions that we pursue and capture has your soul been captured and compelled by the terrifying but transforming grace of jesus toward our sin jesus tells simon in this moment in this moment of realization don't fear not to fear and that from this point on He'll be catching men. He's changing Peter's calling in life. That rather than running away from Jesus because of his sin, he needs to be near Jesus. He needs to to be caught by Jesus, as it were. He needs to be captured by Jesus. He needs to experience in Jesus not condemnation for sin, but saving, transforming grace. Jesus has come to rescue us from our sin not condemn us. Rescue us from the gap that it creates. Rescue us from the fear and the distance that it causes between us and God. Jesus never crushes a heart that comes to see its need for a Savior, that comes to see its need to be rescued from sin. So Jesus puts a new calling into Peter's heart. That rather than telling the story about a once-in-a-lifetime catch of fish, you are going to be telling people about a once-in-a-lifetime encounter with grace that's found in Jesus. The, the phrase that the ESV or the NIV translation has there, catching men, actually reads, <clears throat> men you will be taking alive. Uh, to catch people alive is what Jesus is calling him to do. And it conveys the idea that, that they're, they're being caught and they're being rescued from danger. Here is how you know if you've met Jesus in a life-changing way. You want to share that reality. You say, I found my calling in life. This is what I live for and it fills me with a deep sense of satisfaction and peace. Your new calling in life is to bring a more sinful people to an understanding of Jesus that allows them too to find life, eternal life, life in which the gap and the fear between them and God is replaced with an encounter of grace in Jesus, rescuing people out of the dangers of sin, out of the distance creating slavery of sin. The encounter... The moment is so transforming that Simon and his partners 
Leave one pursuit. Leave one set of ambitions and passions to then go and follow Jesus. This is a description of changed allegiances, not merely the dumping of assets. In fact, often we, we, we find you know, they left everything, and next thing you know, they're back in Peter's house, they're back in Matthew's house. They are leaving behind the goals and ambitions that they had for themselves and, and, and reorganizing everything that they have around following Jesus, even their boats, even their homes. And, but it's deeper and greater than that. The, the, the scope is greater. This is the leaving behind of sinful slavery. This is the leaving behind of nurtured bitterness, of self-rule, of en- envious insecurities, of disordered loves, and finding in Jesus a reordering of these priorities that leads to joy. It's not merely an external thing. It's an internal thing. It's a mutiny of the soul. And only an encounter with grace can turn a heart upside down like this. Only seeing Jesus as the one who can rescue you from sin does this in the life of a person. From now on, Simon Peter would follow Jesus, which means a life of, because you say, Jesus, I will. It means trusting that what Jesus has for you is better than any ambition or goal you could dream up for yourself. It means constantly running towards Jesus than running away from him when you find yourself drowning in sin yet again. It means a life of telling the story of grace that rescued a wretch like me. I wonder, have you found your calling in life? Is it a reality that fills your soul with security and peace? Is it a story you just love to talk about, to tell? You know, there's another story of a miraculous catch of fish. It's not the same story that we find here in Luke 5. It's actually found at the end of John's Gospel in John 21. It takes place after Peter and Jesus have spent some three years together. A partnership that was interrupted by Jesus' crucifixion and Peter's denial of their friendship. Now on top of that, Jesus has actually risen from the grave. His crucifixion, the cross was not the end of Jesus' story. It was not the end of his calling over the lives of these people. But the place where his story was actually and his calling was actually literally applied to their lives. The place where Jesus literally rescued them from sin. What was foreshadowed on the lake became real on the cross. Jesus does not merely call us uh, to fear sin like some kind of mental exercise, not, not to fear sin like some kind of mental exercise. Jesus actually says we don't need to fear sin anymore because he has dealt with the threat of sin. The threat that it causes over us. He's dealt with the distance that it creates between us and God. On the cross, Jesus takes the wrath of God towards sin. And on the cross, Jesus is caught in the net of death. So that we might be caught alive. And now Jesus is back. To share the joy of that reality with his followers. The calling is still alive. The calling is stronger than even the grave. It's greater than any other pursuit that might fade with death. This is an eternal calling. That Peter is wrecked with guilt and with the realization of his own sinfulness. Wondering if he's going to ever again share in the joy of this. 
Peter's out fishing again with John and the lads. And once again, they've been fishing all night. This is in John 21. And they've caught nothing again. When this mysterious figure stands on the shore asking if they've caught any fish. No, thanks for asking. We'll cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Which they do. And lo and behold, they drag up 153 large fish. The disciple who Jesus loved, a.k.a. John, the guy who's writing this gospel, says to Simon Peter, it's the Lord. Peter's mind floods again with an earlier event of a miraculous catch of fish. Fear not, Peter comes flooding back into his life again. For from now on, you have a new calling on your life. Jesus has not voided the promise, the calling on, Jesus, on, 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 on Peter's life, just because Peter has failed in it so profoundly. The call is actually not dependent on Peter's strength to get it right, to live in it, but in the authority of the one who called him. This time, Peter does not jump to the wrong conclusion. This time, Peter runs, or actually swims, toward Jesus because he knows that Jesus has seen him at his worst and standing on the shore is ready to deal with his failure and restore him. Peter knows it's not merely words spoken to him in a boat, but life given to him on the cross that defines the relationship that he has with Jesus, that defines the calling that he has over his life. Peter knows that following Jesus means running toward him, depending upon him. Peter knows that in Jesus, he has found a calling like no other, a deep security and peace, a reality that he must share. In Jesus, he realizes that he is far more sinful than he ever dare admit. But he also knows that he is far more loved than he ever dared dream. And the question is, is that your story? Is that your calling? Is that the kind of thing that you just want to talk about at barbecues and at weddings and bar mitzvahs? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this, uh, this, this story of the calling of, of Simon Peter to come and to have his life consumed with a passion for you. Lord, we pray that you would come and invade our lives, that there would be a mutiny of our souls where we come to see you as the most satisfying pursuit in our lives, where we come to recognize that you are coming to rescue us from death and bring us into life, and that we should organize our lives around that reality. We thank you uh, for how you love us in spite of our potential and our capacity to fail. Lord, we lift our, our lives up before you. Would you fill them with passion? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.